So I snuck in there, uh, and, and I came in, and you were singing a song that had one line in it that you repeated over and over that I needed to hear. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I Is that right? I am who you say I am. And then we followed it up with another line that we sang over and over and over. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. I, I need repetition in my life. I need it in songs in here. I need it in friendship. I need it in my marriage. I need it as a father. I need it as a child of God because I need the deep truths of God grooved in the very core of my soul. Repeated over and over as the Holy Spirit lays down a new track in my life. So with that in mind, I'm going to repeat myself. When we put together a puzzle, it is really helpful if we have the big picture so that we can know what to do with all those little pieces. When you make a dress, it's helpful to have the pattern. And if you want to build a home, you need a set of plans. Amen? And so, for three weeks, separately and together, we have been talking about grace, gratitude, and generosity. Because if, if the Holy Spirit is going to put together the pieces of our lives, we've got to start with grace. And, and if we are going to look and smell and feel like Jesus, we're going to need to put him on by learning to put on gratitude. And if the Holy Spirit is going to have freedom in our life, it's going to be as we learn together as the church to build a temple for the Holy Spirit so that the gifts come in and then flow out into all the world. It's grace, it's gratitude, it's generosity. We are going over this, and if you haven't noticed, we're going over it, and then we're going to do what? We're going to go over it again, but it's not just for you. It's for your neighbors. It's for the people who you're going to see at work tomorrow who you don't really want to see. Even for the person who runs into you at Food Line and needs to know where the Christian life begins and how it develops and where it's all going. Grace, gratitude, and generosity. So even though you've heard it now twice, let me invite you to lean in. And listen well and listen carefully to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, not seven times, but 77 times. In this way, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As the settlement began, a man was brought in who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Since he could not pay, the master ordered that he, his wife, his children, and all that he had be sold to pay the debt. The servant fell at his knees. Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything that I owe. The servant's master had pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. 
But that servant, when he went out, found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred pieces of silver. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell at his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he, had, he went and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back what he owed. The other servants, when they saw this, were deeply troubled. And they went and told the master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I forgave you all you owe because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, the master turned him over to the jailers till he should pay back, till he could be tortured, till he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. A few weeks ago, Alan came to me with the idea of doing this sermon series uh, as we're in this run-up to Thanksgiving he said, hey, let's, let's get together and read the Bible together and pray together and preach together. Um, I think secretly he knew his people needed, he, he knew my people needed to hear from him. No, you had it right the first time. You had it right the first time. You were, you were good. So, so we got together and he invited me into this and we talked about starting at the same place and, and then preaching together. Um, and so that first week, uh, we dove into the deep end of the gospel to talk about the grace of God. And I started uh, in verse 27. Jesus tells this parable to tell us about his father. Uh, and so I, I, I made my home in verse 27. Um, the servant who cannot pay back his debt, uh, his master has compassion on him, cancels the debt, and set him free. Uh, that's where I began trying to point us back to the place where the Christian life begins and then begins again and again and again. And then we sort of looked at the end of the passage and, and, and said this phrase, and we said this over and over again, the grace that we have, or the grace that we are to extend, the grace that we are to give, that we are to offer, will never, will never, will never be more than the grace we, in fact, have been given. That, I had Alan repeat that at Arborddale over and over uh, because we need to hear it. We need to hear uh, that the debt that you owe me or that I owe you doesn't in any way compare with the grace that God gives mm -hmm. us. And so beginning with that grace, last week I came here uh, and invited you to use your imagination to think about the way the parable could have gone if the servant had said thank you, uh, if, if, if he had opened his mouth with praise and his eyes had been filled with tears, then maybe, just maybe, he could have walked out the door and began to live a life of gratitude. Uh, I know I am that unforgiving servant. I know I need to learn to live a life of gratitude. And so I invited you along with me to begin to confess that with humility uh, so, that, so that we can pray for each other with compassion so that together, a, a, as brothers, as a, as a family, as, ch as the church in Banner Elk, we can learn to give thanks. 
It's grace that leads to gratitude. And today, God is inviting us to remember his generosity so that our hearts can be generous like his. Let me pray. Father, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So there's a phrase, grace made visible. It's from Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections. And one of the points that Edwards made in Religious Affections is that when we experience the grace of God, not, not as an intellectual ascent of where we can define it, right? But, but rather when we're at our worst. When, when we're at our worst and when we realize that Christ died for us, when we finally can comprehend and, and understand the gospel, not, not in our mind but in our gut, Right? When we understand that goodness and the grace of God, well, it transforms. It transforms us in such a way that grace is made visible so that we can see that God has done a work in our lives, so that we can see that God has done a work in each other's lives. But what, but what T and I want to be careful of is, is that we, we want to make sure we're, we're not putting on some sort of checklist Christianity. No punch list here. On the lives of, of each other. Because that's, that's not going to work when it comes to, to freedom and to joy. Those things that Christ died to bring us. So we distill it down to simply this. Grace is made visible when the people of God. That's you and I. That's Arborddale. That's, that's Mount Calvary. That's Banner Oak Press. That's Banner Oak Methodist. That's wherever. When the people of God live with an open-handed understanding of all that they have and all that they are. And that we see ourselves not as the owner of anything, but rather as stewards of all that God has given because he's given us everything. Grace is made visible when the people of God display gratitude and generosity then overflows. I know that when you hear that word generosity, people can get a little nervous. Let me just put any fears to rest that this is not something we concocted to lead to some giving campaign at Arborddale or at Banner Oak Christian Fellowship. There's no ulterior motive other than the freedom that is found for us in Jesus Christ as we move from grace to gratitude and a life overflowing of generosity. So I want to focus on today, Matthew 18 again. And, and really, it's, what we're focusing on is the generosity of the king. The king. The generosity of the Godhead, three in one. But before we do that, I want to talk just a minute about Bill Gates. Yeah, Bill Gates, that guy. After all, we've been looking at Matthew 18 and the parable of the unmerciful servant, and we've been talking about millions and millions of dollars that was given and then owed and canceled and hundreds, actually 20 bucks 
that was, that was owed that wasn't forgiven. So we've been talking about this, this massive debt that we've all accumulated, right? And that the, that debt has been paid and, and canceled. So let's, a few statistics about our friend Bill. At, at, at $72.7 billion, Bill Gates, as an individual, is the 37th wealthiest country on earth. Just him. That means that there are hundreds of countries who have fewer resources than Bill himself. Bill Gates, 62-ish years old, so if we assume that he lived to be 95, he would have to spend $6 million a day to exhaust his wealth. Now, wait a minute. That's without making any more during that time period. That's as if the whole entire world economy suddenly collapses. He gains no more interest. He earns no more rate of return on any of the money he has. He would have to spend $6 million a day to exhaust it. I'd like to try that. (laughs) Yeah, brother. But I have no idea how you would do it. A couple other astonishing things. If Bill Gates' $72.7 billion gave everyone on the face of God's green earth $10 tomorrow, he would still be worth $2.26 billion. Billion, not million, B with a B, billion. So you're hearing me. But not only is he the wealthiest man arguably on the earth, but he's also one of the more generous men on earth, if not maybe the most generous when it comes to volume, amount, in fact, Bill Gates has given away somewhere between 26 and $28 billion of his own money, his own income to various charities, primarily to the charity that he and his wife founded that seeks to eradicate diseases through the use of vaccinations. But, but here's what we have to note about both his wealth and his generosity in a worldly sense. To look at this kind of wealth as that profound, uh, kind of mind-boggling, kind of what in the world do you even do with that, right? But compared to the wealth of God, he's a pauper. Because everything he has and all he is was created by God. He hasn't made anything. In regards to his generosity, which is stunning, 26 to 28 billion. He's giving away more money out of his personal income than some countries have to eradicate diseases. No one could argue that he's not generous. In fact, he's unbelievably generous. He's incredibly generous. But when we compare him with the generosity of God, he looks like a hoarder. First Colossians, or Colossians, excuse me, 1, 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All we have, all we are, has been given to us by creator God. All of life, regardless of whether or not we're a believer in Christ, all we enjoy and have gratitude for, for about our lives has been given to us by God. In fact, we, we began to get a sense of the character and the nature of God by, by just considering for a moment his generosity, by considering how he's woven it into our existence, whether we love him or know him or not. There's certain things that are just delightful. They don't have to be delightful. 
They just are because he's generous. Like the taste of food. You know, it's something we have to do every day, right? We have to survive. But he, had, he didn't have to make it taste good. That's just generosity. That's just delightful. And the beauty is none of us see it coming, right? I don't think any of us have ever driven by a pasture or seen some cows out there and thought, you know, that would taste pretty good. I mean, I don't think any of us have ever watched a pig wallowing around in its own filth and thought, you know, you take the back end of that joker and you put it in an oven or a smoker and you chop it up and put a little mustard sauce on there, amen, South Carolina, then all of a sudden we're cooking with gas. And we never thought that. It just tastes good because God's generous. There's something inside that, inside that animal that when it's fried up, it just cures all that ails us. Why? Because God is generous. He gives us flavor to food. He doesn't have to do that, but he does. We see the generosity of God in these simple common graces, as they're called, these gifts to all of mankind, whether we love him or not. There's something we enjoy that, that, was, that was not, there's nothing, excuse me, there is nothing that we enjoy that was not given by God, created by God. In fact, all of life is sustained by, gifted by, held together by the generosity of God, whether we acknowledge it or not. But what I want us to do today simply is, is to look at the Godhead and marvel in its generosity. My hope is that we could be more, di- more dialed in to all that has been given to us. If you take a donut, it's that sweet, sticky thing that you hold and eat, that, that sweet goodness, rather than being dialed into the things we feel like we don't have, like the hole in the middle. Because that's our default position, isn't it? That's my default position. My heart is hyper aware of what I don't have. What I want and have not yet been given. And what I feel entitled and that I deserve. Few of us are experts on all that God has given us. All that he's generously lavished upon us. And if we have a little hitch in our giddy-up, if you will, when it comes to worship and if, if in a regards to a delight in a holy God, I think it can often be tracked back to an unawareness or complete glad, happy ignorance of what God has already given us and how generously he's already dealt with us. Instead, we know what we should have we, and what we didn't get and how it didn't work out, all the while being completely ignorant of where it has worked out of what he has given, and how incredibly well off I am. So the first thing we want to look at is is God the Father. We're looking at the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But as we we look at God the Father as as generosity, we, we look at this. You see, God the Father gives us Jesus. The generosity of the Father is sin is seen in sending his Son, Jesus. John three sixteen through 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here's the thing. 
Here's the thing that makes the generosity of God stunning and so completely different than any of our generosity and certainly Bill Gates' generosity. God's generosity is pointed directly at his enemies. Anybody know of the 26 to $28 billion who Bill Gates has not given one red cent to? Apple. We've all drank the juice, right, Barry? But Bill Gates has not given one cent to Apple. In fact, if you want to study ruthlessness in business, study Bill Gates. But what God does, what what makes him so different in his generosity is that his generosity is pointed to his enemy. We see in John 3, 16 through 18 that God sends his son into the world not to condemn the world, but rather to give, to give us a way out. Think about it. We're, we're all in this glad, happy rebellion against our creator. We, we all, everyone, every one of us, we, we, we're firm believers that we can be our own God, that, that we, we can be our own authority, and that we certainly know what is best for us in this life. It is the default posture of the human heart this wicked rebellion against our Creator. And the response of God is not to destroy, but rather to send the Son, not to condemn, not to show up with a new list of things that we're not going to be able to do, but rather show up as a way out of that condemnation. To, to create a, a way out from under my failures, my shortcomings, my rebellion, to eradicate my past sins, to, to, to help me in my present struggles, and to certainly take care of those future screw-ups. This is the generosity of God. He sends his son. And and how does the generosity in sending the son work itself out? So we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There are a couple of things I think that become extremely important for me to, to me to understand here about, about how God sending the Son marks His generosity in our hearts and in our lives. It's then that in that generosity that generosity can flow from my life. The first one, well actually both of them bring a, an amazing amount of relief. One is that we're not going to be able to obey the law. For God has done what we, the law, could not do, weakened as we were by our flesh by sending the Son. You see, you and I are not going to be able to keep the law in such a way. We're, we're not going to be able to, to, to obey and be good enough to purchase from God our own justification. We have a debt that we cannot pay, period. If you've stumbled in here this morning, figuratively or literally, if you've, if you've stumbled in here this morning just exhausted in trying to check all the boxes, take heart. The scripture says you can't do it. 
trying to earn my own salvation is, is like a person neglecting their family, working 15, 16, 18, 20-hour days to pay a mortgage that they don't owe. It's madness. The commandments of God, in a, in a very real sense, were given to show us that we can obey them. Almost all the days of our lives are, are objective evidence that that is true. God has done what the law could not do, weakened as it was by our flesh. By doing what? By sending the Son. And what is the Son going to do? Well, He's going to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. He, the first kind of great news in Romans chapter 8 is, is that we have this just admission in the Word of God that we, His children, are not going to be able to keep the law perfectly. We're just not going to be able to do it. Weakened as we are in our, in our flesh, we, we, we can't do it. So God accomplishes it for us by sending his son. And, and then the second piece here is that Jesus has provided all that is required when it comes to fulfilling the law. He fulfilled it all, A-L-L, capital A, capital L, capital L, all. Well, that can't be right. Surely I need to do something. But when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to God forgiving us, canceling our debt, delighting in us, and calling us his own, we can do nothing to help him with that. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. It is Christ alone who, who justifies by grace through faith. There are some things that I want to help my kids, that Amy and I want to help our kids with. And then there are some things that they simply cannot help us with there is a time for them as Amy always reminds me there is a time for them to be in the kitchen working and then there's a time when they just need to get out of the kitchen and there is a time when Amy very politely gives me the boot out of the kitchen but what so many of us want to do is help God with our salvation. And he is telling us, get out of the kitchen, bro. You can't. We're not stopping him from saving us. We're stopping ourselves from enjoying what he has done. We're, we don't thwart the purposes of God. We thwart our own joy and potential gratitude, which leads to a life overflowing of generosity. Purchased for us by the Son of God. The generosity of God the Father is seen in the sending of the Son. God puts, the, God the Son puts on flesh and, and comes to earth. The humility to come into what he created. He who sustains and holds everything. I, one of the, I try to get my, my head around this and marvel at it is, is the fact that Everything Christ was doing while he was on earth was actually created by him and sustained by him. So if I get all the way to the, to the crucifixion, the very tree, the very wood that they nailed him to is created by him and held together and sustained by him. The glands necessary to work up spit in the mouth and the muscles required to fling that spit out of our mouth was created by, sustained by, and held together by Jesus Christ himself. So that when the men spit upon him during the crucifixion, they are doing it because Christ allows it and designed them to be able to do it. Who's in charge? 
so it is with the nails. This, this is why he, he has that authority over the creative order, because he created it all. He sustains it all. He holds it all together. It's why he can curse a fig tree and it just dies. It's, he can tell a storm to stop and it obeys because he is God. He has always been, and in him all things hold together. God the Father shows his generosity by sending the Son in whom he delights greatly. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Secondly, with the Godhead. Jesus is generous, and we see his generosity, and that he lays down his life. Now, there's an important way for us to think about the crucifixion of Jesus. We look at John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus speaking here says, No one takes it, my life, from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It becomes important for us to get this, to understand that, yes, Jesus is arrested and murdered by men, but Christ is not killed via the authority and the power of man. Rather, he is killed by the submission to the Father's will. No one takes his life, he lays it down. It was not the flexing of Pilate and the power of the high priest guard who who took the life of Jesus. In fact, on some separate occasions, we see this working itself out. The first place is in the garden where Peter, we love Peter, I love Peter, I love him. Where Peter wants to make this a sword fight, just do something, right? I bet Peter was about this big, I bet he had a red beard, about this big around. Just saying. Just saying. He wants to have a fight. <laughs> but Jesus isn't having it. He tells, hey, Peter, put the sword away. He heals the guy Peter struck, right? You would think that that in and of itself would shut down the whole arrest. Just end it right there. Peter whacks off the guy's ear. Jesus puts it back on. The guy's like, okay, I'm out. Whoa. Done. You had me an ear back on. But that's not what happens. They do, in fact, arrest Jesus. And he says to Peter, do you not know I could call out my father and have at my disposal 12 legions of angels? Translation, you think they're arresting me, brother? I'm going. They're not taking In this great dialogue about the nature or the truth and the power with Pilate, Jesus tells Pilate, another paraphrase, oh, you think you're crucifying me? You you have no power except what was given to you by heaven. See, and the scriptures tells us that no one is taking Jesus' life. He lays it down. We also see that not only is it laid down, but not taken, but the soul of Jesus, knowing the pain that was to come, pushed into the desire of his father and the delight he had in the father to purchase for the father us. We see that in John 12, 27, when he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this this purpose I have come to do this. I've come to die. I've come to lay my life down to give it. There isn't some sort of divine lidocaine that's about to be put on the sun before he goes to the cross. It will be brutal. 
It will be painful. He will be absorbing all of God's wrath toward those who will repent and believe him. Yet he says, not because I will it, but because you will it, Father. Christ's life is one he does not owe. He has not sinned. He's not rebelled. He's perfect in any way. There is no sin in him. He and he alone can pay a debt that we owe, but cannot pay. He gives his life as this ransom for us. And we see, what we see above this idea of ransom is this idea of this, this example. We see this idea of incredible grace and gratitude filled with a life overflowing of generosity. You see, I think, my opinion is, is I think that we as people, as we as followers of Jesus, I think that we are happiest when life is least about us. And we're more miserable the more life is completely about us. I am more miserable when I think I can change the light bulb by holding it while the world revolves around me. But Jesus says to us, you, you, will, you will use how I've gifted you, how I've wired you, and, and been generous to you, and extend that generosity to others. You want to be great in my eyes? You, you want to be great in the eyes of the Father? Then serve. Serve. Begrudgingly? No. Because we've been so graciously served, we then serve, we then give. Why? Because of guilt? No. Jesus, Jesus says, because I've dealt so abundantly and richly with you. We see the generosity of the Godhead and the fact that God sends his son and that the son lays down his life. That leaves us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does much in regards to lavishing upon us generosity. He brings gifts. He gifts them to us. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You see, God sends His Son. The Son lays down His life, and the Holy Spirit brings gifts to the children of God. There are two ways that this giftedness works itself out. The first thing is he does is that he ransoms and he redeems our intuitive gifts. Each of us, each of us was born with a, a bent towards things, things that we're naturally good at. You just come out of the womb with them. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a passionate guy, Right? I'm a bit of a driven guy. I'm a bit of a competitive guy. I may or may not have taken a soccer ball in a middle school girls soccer game when a call was not given that should have been, and I took that ball and I punted that ball as hard as I could into the opposing goal. I'm passionate. I'm a... I'm a feeler. I'm not a thinker. T is a thinker. That's why I like to be with T, because he can think, and then I can go home later and feel about it. <laughs> it's a marriage made in heaven right here. I don't apologize for being passionate, for being 
fiery. Right? It's, it's how I was created. That, that drivenness, that, that was all there before I, became, before I, I, I knew Christ. It was all there. And, and it was honestly pointed in some pretty dark directions. But what the Holy Spirit did when I became a believer and, and a follower of Jesus is redeem those gifts. I'm going to use them toward my, my own destruction is, is what I was hell-bent on doing. And then the Holy Spirit said that passion, that drive, I, I'm going to take that feeling. I'm going to take that. And that passion was, was always there and, and, and now suddenly burns with the right fuel. That zeal, that passion, that drive nature, it's mine, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit redeems it. The Holy Spirit comes in and takes those intuitive gifts we have and, and flips the switch away from idolatry and lets those gifts begin to serve the kingdom in a way that brings us joy and gladness, that, that honors the name of the Lord, that is a life overflowing with generosity. And because these gifts and, and the move of the Holy Spirit, we, we, lean in, we lean into grace, we walk into gratitude, and we begin to have this life that overflows. Grace, gratitude, generosity. And then on top of these intuitive gifts, he, Jesus or the Holy Spirit brings patience and empathy and compassion and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Fruit of the Spirit. Grace, gratitude, generosity. May we, may we walk in it well. We said at the beginning that the hope as we leave here today would, would be that we would be much more focused on what we have been given rather than on what we have not. And that we would leave here today meditating on the grace and the mercy of God, able, able to live a life that is full of gratitude that overflows in, into generosity. T shared with us last week about Ann Voskamp's methodology of, of recognizing, of naming, and, and speaking to the blessings of God. Specifically. Specifically. Everything from the way pork tastes when prepared properly to the way a hot cup of coffee brought to you by someone. me if you how big a debt that I owe how amazing it's been canceled grace and gratitude and generosity let me pray Father I thank you for these men and these women I thank you for this opportunity to spend time this morning gathered in your goodness and in your grace, humbling ourselves to recognize that and to be grateful and live a life of gratitude that overflows into generosity, not based on anything we have manufactured, but because, Lord, you are generous with us. Father, we thank you for your generosity. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, Thank you for laying down your life and the Holy Spirit for strengthening, empowering, and giving gifts so that we, we might make much of this. Father, dial in our hearts to your goodness and your grace and your generosity. 
Help us to move from that grace to, to gratitude and to live a life that is overflowing. A life of overflowing generosity. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.